Hello, everyone. I'm Adam Satir, and I'm here with my longtime co-host, Dave Tenholder, to welcome you to Season 3 of the Con Podcast Series. Now, it's actually been about four years since we started releasing these, so we should actually be on Season 5, but we're not. So let's just consider the last three years a wash, be true Pazakanites, and move forward and up, and begin again now with this season's Episode 1. I mean, it's a new year, and it's full of possibilities, so let's have some fun and hopefully learn something new. Hey, Dave? Yeah, don't worry, Adam. With climate change and all, I'm, I have no doubt you're not the only one who's confused about exactly what season it is. <laughs> Thank you for that, Dave. It is season three, and we are in episode one. Now, the one thing any regular listener will know is that when we start a new season, we generally tend to change things around a bit. I mean, the world is constantly changing, so we have to adapt to survive. So that's what we're going to do starting tonight. Our goal, actually, for this season is to do one podcast a month for the entire year. I know it's a little ambitious, but we're going to try. Since most of the topics we're going to be talking about are complex, the idea is to group, I don't know, X number of episodes into a series that examines said topics. The individual episodes will focus on specific concerns, breaking them up into workable parts and asking big questions. Then, with the help of our extended family of experts who are joining us here today, we'll try to offer suggestions as to how to generate some positive economic actions for a better ride through this chaotic world we live in, and maybe even have a little fun doing it. Does that make sense to you, Dave? I'd say, as per usual, Adam, you're making about as much sense as a screen door on the submarine or a chocolate teapot. Okay, Dave, thanks for that. Let's get started. The title, uh, the title topic for this first series is AI, Artificial versus Actual Intelligence. Now... You'd have to be living under a rock for the last years, two years if you haven't heard all the concerns about what artificial intelligence is going to do to society, both for the good and the bad. What you haven't heard a lot of, well, I should say what I haven't heard discussed in great deal to, detail, is how artificial intelligence is going to affect actual intelligence. So that's what we're going to be looking at over the next several episodes. For this episode, we're going to be concentrating on human development. More specifically, how technology is changing the way we work and how the next generations are going to learn. I'm very lucky to be joined with three people who have a much greater understanding of learning and development than I do because they all work closely with it. First, um, let's, uh, let's bring back Dave back. Let's say hello to Dave. Dave, why don't you rhyme everybody who you are and what you do? Well, I'm Dave. I teach 11th and 12th grade English in uh, an outstanding private school here in Madrid. I feel very lucky to do so. Um, I help coordinate the English department. We have the International Baccalaureate Program, the Spanish National Program. Uh, we do SAT exams at our school. I help out with that. But more importantly, I'm a proud husband. I'm a dad of a six-year-old daughter, and I'm currently actually on paternity leave with my seven-month-old son. So speaking of development, I'm seeing a lot of it going on right now. Well, that's great. I'm sure you can add a whole new perspective just having being having a six-year-old and having a newborn. I mean, there's probably going to be a lot of changes you're going to see between those two. Um, thanks, Dave, and welcome. I'm glad you're here with me. Um, our next guest, well, she's been with us before, and we're glad she's back. Welcome Ellie James to the show. Ellie, I know you're more on the tech side now, but you had vast experience working with kids and practical education. So uh, why don't you uh, say hello and uh, tell us a little about yourself or remind us a little about yourself. Aloha, yes, it's good to be back. Uh, thanks for having me on the show again. I'm Ellie James and I'm working with a design studio for most of my day-to-day -day life. We reimagine how people work and learn and I'm lead business strategist with that by day. And then in whatever free time may be left over, I've been for the past few years directing uh, the Madrid branch of a charity and NGO called CISB, and we have volunteers and young participants all around the world from the age around 10 or 11 upwards. We're sort of seeing how we can create more active global citizens or encourage kids to be thinking for themselves and interacting with others around the world in different ways and uh, sort of developing in, in that sense too. So there's a, a lot of impact that I'd like to look in to from that uh, regard, um, as well as just having a bit of a curiosity for it. I mean, we've worked together on projects in the past around uh, the harmonization of technology within society. I've been dabbling in different apps here and there along the way as well. So there's, there's various things to uh, bring into the mix tonight, I think. 
I know, and you're, you, you know, you're always a great addition to any podcast that we've ever done. You have a unique perspective that really brings us, and actually, I, I should mention this, we actually are working with two generations. We have two millennials, and we have two, well, maybe three generations, depending on how old you count me as. Anyway, thanks, Ellie. I'm glad to have you here with, here with us. Now, uh, let me introduce our newest member of the PodCon podcast crew, uh, Joya Nunez. Uh, now, Joya is a pediatrician and is focusing her further studies on health tech. So she should actually be able to add a very interesting perspective to the conversation, I mean, both from an actual physiological and a technical side. So, Joya, why don't you say hello and tell us a little about yourself. Welcome. Hi, thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, I'm, I am a pediatrician, but then for the last couple of years I've been... Uh, wanting to pursue something else in the health sphere, so I get I got really into health informatics, uh, which is an area that for for those of of you who don't know, it uh, what what it what it does is it focuses on ICTs, which are information and technology and communication technologies uh, to leverage all the healthcare processes. This involves from patients to professionals to administrative people to whoever is in the route. Um, and these last few years, I've been working for different companies, mostly startups or small businesses on specifically digital health matters. Uh, since I'm a pediatrician, what interests me the most is that intersection between pediatrics and uh, health tech, but uh, but but I do uh, a wide range of of stuff in this area. And uh, a couple of months ago, I moved to Madrid, so I'm also here with Dave and Ellie, and I'm also working on trying to improve my work-life balance. Well, good. I'm sure we'll help you with that. We love the work-life balance, don't we? And also, you should say that you know you're from Argentina, right? You know, because she's oh, right. Only, yeah, I forgot. <laughs> she's not. She's the only non in, non native English speaker that we have here. But Joya, thank you very much. We're very much looking forward to hearing what uh, you can add to that. So that's our crew and our plan for tonight. A uh, big welcome to all of you. I'm glad to have you all here now. Uh, and so let's uh, get ourselves ready for the next part, which is the big questions. And uh, well, we'll be right back. Okay, hello again, we're back. Um, so now we're going to get right into it with the big questions around AI and human development. The way this is going to work is that I'll ask one of our crew to be the first to answer and then the others will come in. There are three questions, so each of them are gonna have a chance to answer first and set the tone of the conversation as far as you want it. So um, here's my first question and I'm gonna give it to you, Dave, okay? So as... Uh, it, I guess the question is, is AI homogenizing the way we behave as educators for the mind-body experience as we, and are we sacrificing individualism for the ease of execution? I mean, I guess what I'm saying here is that as AI tools become more um, commonplace amongst the institutions of the world, in education as institutions around the world, Will we, move, will we all move to a similar methodology of teaching, reporting, and, and dispensing discipline that the machine leads us to and has told us is best? If we, believe, if we believe humans are intrinsically lazy, which is a big assumption, then isn't it fair to ask if the machines are providing the educators an acceptable solution, are they going to care enough to be contrary to the machine's instructions and push their own personal ideas and teaching values first? Dave? You know, I don't think it's really going to be any different than the rest of the sector of society. And to be perfectly honest, I don't think the academic community, not mine personally or the larger one, is really on top of it at all. People's original reaction uh, was, of course, very defensive of, you know, I went to every department in the school uh, and it's someone, and I told them, here, look at this. And people were immediately, you know, your knee-jerk reaction is how does this affect me and how can I stop it from affecting me right now rather than seeing that that's not what it's about. And so this is a challenge that, and frankly, the community is not ready for. The short-term answer is right now, for example, everybody is desperately trying to change the day-to-day 
way on the short term it affects them. All compositions are now being done, at least in my department, or there's nothing written at home any longer. That was probably already uh, necessary. So um, I'm encouraging students to try to, and teachers, to work with students to try to find a way to integrate it into their classroom, have students take the most active role in actually doing that. But of course, there's the practical solution of, you know, how do we evaluate students still? The biggest reflection I had for everyone else, uh, uh, the other teachers at our school, was don't think about how this changes and you adapt what you've done until now based on this technology. Realize, in terms of writing, for example, this technology is how everyone is already writing in the real world. So you need to think about at what stage of the education it's integrated into the classroom and how and how it's evaluated. And right now, my, despite being on leave, I think I can confidently say that the educational community in general is not at all ready for it. I'm going to jump in and sort of echo that a little bit. But I think there's also a bit of a, it's kind of a natural evolution that we find ourselves faced with at the moment. And in the same way as we've gotten used to having uh, word processing equipment and search engines and the next sort of developments as we've gone, we're seeing now sort of tablets used in a lot of classrooms, necessarily all classrooms. Obviously, there's different uh, accessibility questions around the world there, but a lot of learning is facilitated by technology nowadays. And there's a significant question here around, well, okay, how much is it replacing what we're learning or is it more just replacing the processes by which we were learning beforehand? And if we can guide that sort of evolution and that learning process, I think there can be a lot of benefit towards seeing AI solutions. One of the things that I found quite intriguing recently was the prospect of uh, educating students around how to critique AI and to be more of a critical thinker when it comes to AI in, in the process. So it's not avoiding it, but it is learning to read it a little bit better and to be able to adapt to it um, and around it in that sense. And we see a similar thing happening across the working industries as well. I mean, if we think that it's being used roughly around 60% within the classrooms generally, according to the statistics available for the US at least, uh, within the working industry, that increases a little bit when you think about the day-to-day -day tasks, like the sort of 44%, I think, is the average ballpark figure for how much we're already using it to work into daily tasks, whether it's sort of uh, facilitating email filtering or conversational stuff, or if it's preparing um, you know, job profiles and candidacies and CVs and all of this kind of stuff, or if it's going towards, okay, I've got a presentation to create, et cetera. There's, you name it, there's so many tasks available to us now and there'll be a lot more to come in future. I think there's a really exciting opportunity in terms of the job uh, availability. At the moment, there's some replacement and that's where the fear comes from. But eventually that's going to turn around and be a lot more about creation and facilitation and increasing the possibilities thanks to these technologies. Joya, what's your take? Yeah. Well, I, I was going to mention that there's a very interesting and insightful interview that was done back in the 80s where they talked with Isaac Asimov and they talked about this specific matter without the technology that we have today. But he tells this so beautifully in a very, much better way than I, I can tell it. But his idea was that back in the day when education was a privilege and only those who were who were wealthy enough uh, were able to access it it was given through one tutor to one student uh, one one by one one to one in, in that sort of relationship and as soon as education become a really necessity and we had to make it bigger and wider that regime didn't apply anymore and we had to adapt into a new type of relationship in which one tutor would teach a lot of students. And I think that that leap back then also in a way resembles that, uh, that leap that we are talking today about personalizing versus homogenizing the, the education that we give in, in, a, in a much um, a smaller perspective. No? But in the 80s, his prediction was that the day would come where internet access and uh, different tools would help us move on to a new type of relationship where many teachers would be able to study 
to to teach one each each student and i think that we 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 are experiencing that in a way right now but with adding ai now and all these tools that come with it i think that we are also moving on to that direction with a bigger leap um so i think that it can be a new way of personalizing the education even further yet well i i guess I get the sense from the three of you, at least, that, that you, there's no worries there in terms of the way AI, AI is interacting with education and, and you're seeing it as a useful tool and it's gonna move us in a direction that's only gonna help us and expand the, the, the human education. Well, good, I hope so. I hope you guys are all right and, and that, that, that the machines aren't gonna tell us what to be teaching their, our kids and that, that the people are still gonna be leading the way in that. And that it's just a, it's something that's going to augment education rather than direct it. Okay, well that's cool. Thanks. Um, next question. Um, let's. Next question goes Ellie. You're, you can be first on this one, Ellie. As um, as uh, AI um, pushes VR virtual reality to to new levels never seen, um, we can expect it to become much more attractive slash addictive to the users. Um, forget about TV, it, it won't compete, and we already know how addictive TV is to the average person. So um, how is this new virtual reality or, and even augmented reality going to change the way we socialize as we grow up? And, and do you think, again, I like to leave it homogenized because I worry that the machines are going to pin us into a particular track that they want us to be in, but homogenize social behavior to an ideal type of behavior? I mean, can the programs behind virtual reality and, and I'm in reality create an ideal society that they want or, or what their picture of the ideal society and sell it to the people? I mean, my concern really is that as the next generation becomes more and more comfortable relying on um, virtual reality as their entertainment or even existence, will the real world even measure up? I mean, will we want to know our neighbors, Ellie? So I think there's a really interesting question around the latter bit that you've posited there, the reality versus almost the expectation versus reality quandrum that we have with social media, that we have with these diverse experiences, that you the grass is greener on the other side, and in this case, the side just happens to be the technological picture, and that we can do more, we can see more, we have these tools, we have these sort of uh, exponential and endless possibilities, whereas the reality of it, as it stands today at least, is that the we can't facilitate that emotional connection that we get from other people yet through the technology that we have available right now. There are obviously leaps and bounds being made every day. This is sort of becoming more approximated towards mimicking human behavior and attitude. But as it is at the moment, we can't necessarily get there and therefore the biochemistry is just not being met. But what it can do is it can help you to get your get to know your neighbor, for example, that is on the other side of the world and open up these geographical possibilities that we haven't had before because of the time it took to get there or the different time zones, even that kind of uh, logistical problem and dilemma, which means that now we're able to connect with any pocket of the world at any time. We can explore ideas together. We can come back. We can do it all from the comfort of our own home. We don't have to worry about access beyond having a decent internet connection or at least a mediocre one. And that in itself is quite mystical and quite uh, fantastical in terms of the possibilities. We're seeing a rise, obviously, of digital spaces being created around this. And at the moment, they're cloning the real world to make it more comfortable, to make it more accessible and to make it more understandable on one level. But that, I think, will break down the more familiar we become with these technologies themselves and the more creative we can therefore get within them. There's a series of different things that are already starting to facilitate that, whether it's software on your phone, whether it's actual devices that obviously help uh, with sort of bioconnections and uh, touching haptics, that kind of thing that can start to simulate. I think Disney this week uh, announced that they were creating a sort of multi-directional um, trackpad that you could walk on and that you could uh, experience sort of walking through the metaverse as if it was real, which removes some of the... Uh, meme content that we have of people walking into things when they're using VR headsets or goggles, right? Or this kind of stuff. So there is a bit of a sort of step forwards in that sense. The social aspect of it is not necessarily there yet for us to rely just on the technology. We're still looking to uh, import our social conventions into 
the technological sphere, but the technology is becoming more seamless with that. And that's quite interesting that we have more of a symbiosis going on with the devices around us. Well, I agree with you, Ali. And I, I think that the metaverse arrived here as a promise of uh, the next internet revolution. I don't think it has taken uh, fully to its its own limit yet, but I do some er I do see some areas of um, potential, like not only on the entertainment field as we were talking, but also on our day to day actions. For instance, um, Google Maps now lets you guide you with your own camera. You show your phone around and it, it comes up with arrows and indications and notifications, and that's AR, it's augmented reality. And if you can use that for guidance, imagine what else comes up with, with all sorts of, of, of stuff, of, of things, of uh, applications in, in that sort of, of uh, things that we do every day. And I, I, I do agree with you that as these things start to come along, we begin to use them. The, the, there's an enormous gray area on how, what can and cannot be done in terms of legally, morally, and regulations. So that's like one of the biggest challenges for, for this instance for us to work on. That's a great point, Joya. But you know, you talked about other applications. I've been told that one must love their neighbors themselves. You talked about other human activities we do every day. Certainly not every day. But, you know, humanoid robots trained increasingly by larger, you know, LLMs and data sets and that are going to be more and more realistic every day. But they're already changing the way that some people love themselves. And I guess maybe their neighbors... Ellie mentioned their neighbors around the world. So on one hand, that sounds, you know, a long-distance relationship maybe is not so long-distance. Maybe sooner or later people will be loving themselves as they're loving their neighbors. <laughs> well, I think the, I, I, I'm, I mean, I like the idea of, you know, getting to know your neighbors across the, the, the world, but I also like to get... I feel what's happening is we're, we're losing a, a little bit of the sense of the local communities. And just going back into the human development thing, I I've, I've read at least that human touch is super important when you're, when you're a baby and when you're growing up, that you need the physical touch of your, of your family and your parents and your friends, and it makes a big difference in your development and your, and your social development, I should say. I think it's a, I mean, my worry in terms of the, in terms of the virtual reality and bringing everything is, well, I mean, besides the fact that this is, this speaks directly to losing our actual intelligence as, as the augmented reality teaches us how to, we don't even have to worry about where we are anymore because we just put up a phone or we have the glasses on and it tells us where we're going. We don't have to understand where we are in space or time anymore. It becomes, I think, I think we're losing something in there somehow or another in, in the future we have to, one of the issues that we should remember is that we don't want to lose everything that we've developed over the millennial that human beings have been around. But hey, we're not going to solve the problems here. But I love the I love the positiveness, and I love the fact that you're not too worried about the fact that you know people are just going to be living. In, and by the way, in in the pandemic, there were plenty of people who who bonded with these apps. They created apps because they didn't have anybody else to talk to, and they made friends, and they and they were talking to these. I think we, you and I even talked about that like uh, years ago during the pandemic, that these people would, were so lonely that they started befriending their own, they, they made applications that actually did, using rudimentary AI, talk back to them and, and had conversations. But anyway, I think it's a, something very, very, very necessary for us to keep an eye on how we control virtual reality and how we, the metaverse, when Joya was saying about we haven't even gone to the metaverse, yeah, you're right. Well, when the metaverse becomes really real and people don't leave, I mean, you don't leave your house, you put on your helmet, you go out in your little machine, and uh, <laughs> I don't know. Well, on that note, maybe we're ready for the next big question. Adam, what do you say? So we're down to the last one. There's only three, so it's not like it's going to kill us. So for this, uh, this is the last big question for this episode. And this one, Joya, you get to open this one. So as uh, the technologies of uh, AI, machine learning, virtual reality become more prevalent in our daily lives from an early age, um, we can certainly expect the new generations will be more familiar and comfortable living 
with it than their predecessors. Now, this is bound to create a divide. And it's my belief that the better the technology, the bigger the divide is going to be. So the faster technology changes, the, the quicker these divides grow between the younger and older generations. So how can we keep the elder generations connected, and how do we make sure um, they're relevant in the eyes of their offspring? I mean, that throughout modern history, most of the child's learning has come from the home. I mean, how do we keep the real social value of the family alive, and how do we help parents teach their children if they can't relate to one another? You know, bottom line, if TikTok says one thing and their parents say another, um, who are they going to listen to? That's the real question. Well, this is a very interesting issue. We were talking about this with my husband a couple of days ago, and I don't really remember how we got there, but he mentioned how Generation X was conflicted with the fact that they were educated both by their parents while growing up, but then also by their children on how to use and deal with technology. And then this led me to thinking on, from I, I, I am a millennial, and from my perspective, um, I feel like maybe we are the first generation that we have to teach both our children, like growing up, but also our parents. And that also leads me to thinking on how from this point on, from this point on, we are approaching singularity and who knows what will happen. We haven't even seen the consequences of those generations uh, linger on for, for, for enough time. So I am also a member of the ICD's committee for the Argentine Society of Pediatrics. And this is a, a topic that we give a lot of relevance and we try to address it as much as we can. We have written a lot of material and we have guidelines and recommendations on how to regulate children's screen time, how to uh, participate in or take part in their interactions and content while using the internet. And I believe that we have not yet uh, witnessed the full spectrum of the consequences that, that, that children have from growing up with it. But for me, to alienate them from, from screen time, internet, social media, is not really like an adequate approach. What I think is that Parents should be a part involved in a company, monitor their experience, their connections, their social media. And also, the most important thing for me is to encourage them to be more productive on screen than to use screen for leisure and passive content consumption. And I think that if this is done right, it could provide children with an incredible amount of tools that would leave, that would give them invaluable advantage for creativity, problem solving, and critical thinking. As, as both a teacher and as a parent, that uh, I, that resonates with me incredibly a lot. And I think the day is coming faster than my wife and I realize that we need to deal with these issues from the side of the parent. We've dealt with them as teachers. And the idea of needing to educate parents and give parents the tools to do so, I, I think needs to be, can't be stressed enough. And I think that's probably maybe the biggest challenge for schools. It, this is going to constantly be a game of catch up. Adam mentioned this idea about technology is changing faster than ever. So this is like a different type of experience, and that's something I'm, I'm always torn about. Are we just like every generation that think this is the end of the world, this is the biggest change, when radio was invented, when TV was invented, when MTV came? My gut instinct is that I tend to agree with Adam that you know this is a whole different degree of change, but it, I might just be getting old. So I don't know. What do you say? Ellie? I think there is something in that because I think that there's a key amount that we're putting our perspective onto this with a certain demographic and age and sort of experience and even our, our context from where we've come from and the way that we've grown up. And we're expecting 
to educate children based on that reference rather than the experience that they're having, which is that the world is full of screens and it's kind of lived through a hybrid reality at the moment. And then to try and segregate that and say, okay, well, there's uh, one way to behave in that world and there's one way to behave in the real world is almost false for them. It's not necessarily how they're going to experience the world. So I think there's something really important in kind of what Joy was touching on as well of being more actively connected and then actively disconnected rather than passive connectivity where you're sort of doom scrolling or just sort of plugged in but not necessarily using it for something whether it's to be creative or whether it's for relaxation and entertainment or whether it's for learning or whether it's for x y and z i think it needs to have a bit more purpose around it and guiding that purpose is going to be all of our journeys together whether it's for ourselves or for our younger loved ones or even the older generations who are now trying to connect and stumbling across this and saying well what on earth is even the language that we're using in this digital sphere which is very different from the physical world around us and the way that we behave and interact is incredibly different i mean there's subcultures there's different uh linguistic structures there's obviously memes there's visual content as well as spoken or listened uh content there's all kinds of different things that we encounter there which make it a really convoluted experience and especially for someone who's not as used to that and the fast pace of it it can be super overwhelming so i think there's a whole series of different things that we need to be able to interpret the stimuli that we have and use a wide array of stimuli within our lives to be able to explore to play to challenge again whether it's kids whether it's olders whether it's everybody all together or whether it's us as individuals that we have this possibility to learn. I mean, I, for one, have learned a lot from TikTok or probably more Instagram that's copying TikTok two weeks later. I'm of that generation, so that's fine. Um, and I think that there's something quite enriching around that where it can even be that sort of community upbringing. And they say it takes a village to raise a child, right? Well, the village has just sort of changed its limits and moved to the online space, but there's still that knowledge share that goes on. There's just also a lot of dancing or silliness that also happens. So there needs to be a bit of a bit of filter or a bit of appreciation for that um, conscience that has to go along with it and kind of limiting the usage time maybe or the behaviors that we would expect to have, um, I think is going to be the vital sort of educational aspect there. But that needs to adapt to the format that we're all encountering. I think there's one more thing just to, to add into this. As, as somebody who grew up in a very much more written with a sort of pen and paper, as in uh, environment and educational structure as a child, um, I didn't realize just how much I'd adapted to the digital world until very recently. I was sitting an exam for a, a sort of language test, and I wasn't able to cut and copy and paste and move things around on the page in the same way with that dexterity that I would have through, thanks to the digital tools. Now, obviously, autocorrect aside, it was a really weird experience to not be as fluent in that sense and to not have those tools available to me simply because we were sitting in the, in the real world, so to speak, with pen and paper rather than using a, a sort of word processor or a laptop in this case. And I think that in that regard even within the past sort of 10, 20 years or whatever else, we've come on so far that it would be a shame to try and limit that just for the nostalgia of, well, that's not how we did it once upon a time. Just to interject one second, I don't know if I would call it nostalgia. I would think it's a different way of thinking. I would also say that I think that as TikTok is, is great and you can learn how to cook recipes, you can learn how to change a tire, you can do it with all the YouTube and TikToks and everything out there, you're not going to learn critical thinking in a 17-minute in a video. And you're not going to understand what, what it is in that. And I think the problem that I worry about and, and that, we're, that, that idea that you said that you had to structure your thoughts before you wrote them down, people don't think about what they're writing anymore. People don't think as much or, or as clearly or as cautiously about what they're saying because it can easily be erased or it can be, or it can be edited or it can be changed. And that where, there's, where there's tremendous value in it, and I'm not taking away from any of the value, I'm saying there's also value in being able to do that to put together a thought together before, to draw an outline first and then put out the paper instead of having to, to remember the ways that we used to do it. So, and then going back to Joya saying, let me tell you, Joya, you know, when you have kids, your kids are going to be teaching you too because the technology is going to continually changing. And I'm not, I'm an Xer, boomer, whatever, whatever I am, and I've taught my parents how to do it. And, I, and my friend here, Ellie, sitting across from me here, has taught 
me a lot about technology, and I and I love staying in touch. I don't have any kids, but I love staying in touch with the young because they they do keep me a little bit abreast of it. But even now, I feel like I'm I'm out, a little out of touch, and because technology continues to change. The main thing in my mind is that we need to we need to not forget about what we've already invested so much time in developing. I mean, the whole thing about history tends to repeat itself because we forget about what history is. Anyway, so that's my thought. Dave, did you want to add anything before we close the section out, or you just want to? Ellie mentioned about, in, at some point, she talked about at, being actively connected and actively disconnected, which I think is very important. But it also caught my attention, the idea of, oh, we can't, uh, creating a space in, in the educational environment for students. We're talking about school for young people that is somehow outside of their reality or contradictory to it or flies in the face of it. And for me, there's a very real tension there that I don't, I'm not clear about. To what extent, if we're talking about actively disconnecting, if it's not at school, where is it going to be? Where are kids going to learn how to be actively disconnected? And that probably goes for the whole school community. The, also, the idea about writing with pen and paper is another tension there that I don't think it's just because I'm a dinosaur. The thing about pen and paper in a book and not having laptops on, on in a classroom of 14, 15, 16, 17, 18-year-olds overbet on the gamification or gamification, whatever you young people call it. For me, I feel every day older. Like, no, I'm sorry. My kid needs to learn. It's not a game. It's not all just bells and whistles and teaching me. I think learning to be bored, and now I'm really a dinosaur, is something that's maybe way undervalued today. But I will stop now before I start telling the kids to get off my lawn. You know, Dave, if you're a dinosaur, I don't know what that makes me. But, you know, <laughs> luckily we've got the, the two, two young millennials here who are, who are, like, totally okay with it. I'm glad you had trouble writing it, Ali, but I, I know you love notebooks. I know in your heart of heart you still love notebooks. You don't have taken notes and pen and paper. Okay, well, I think that was fun. That was that was very interesting, and it brought up, I think, a lot of issues and areas of discussion that you know we, we might follow up with in future episodes. I mean, if anyone out there wants to ask any of these wonderful people a question, you know, feel free to contact them. I'll put their emails. I'll embed their emails in our, in this post somehow. Um, one of these one of these young people will teach me how to do that if I can't remember. <laughs> No, I'm kidding. I can do that. So we're going to take a break again, and we'll get back to you with the last parts of our show. Uh, we'll talk about some of the real-life applications, and then uh, off to cheers and wine. Okay, so we'll be right back. Thank you. Okay, welcome back, everybody, in, uh, to the PauseCon podcast, uh, Season 3, Episode 1. Uh, talking about AI, artificial versus actual intelligence. Um, in this section of the podcast, I'd like us to bring our discussion out of the possible future incomes that we've been talking about back to the present so we can see where we're starting from. To talk about tech, the tech and the AI tools out there that we're currently using and are available. How are they helping and what, if anything, do we need to actually be watching for? Um, as an example, from, to start off the conversation, I guess I'll say that I saw in the news today how they developed a robot designed to specifically work with autistic children. Apparently, these children don't uh, demonstrate the same social anxieties working with the robot as they would working with humans. So now there's a ro so the, the the video that I saw there was a robot going through this instruction with a with a screen on his chest and the, talking to the kid and having a conversation. And the parents were watching from behind with a two-way mirror. And, I mean, I think it's great uh, that the tool is available. I just don't know what it says about the future. Uh, right now, the robot is pretty basic, but what happens when it gets smarter? Uh, do we have to worry about what, what it's teaching? I don't know. I mean, these are the questions I suppose that we have to keep in mind and we have to be thinking about as we move forward. But right now, for the moment, it's a very useful tool treating these autistic kids because the, they couldn't react to the human, so this is a way to avoid that. And I'm glad of that. So I just think it's something that we need to keep our eyes on. Now, you guys are all experts in your, in your fields, and you work with a lot of technologies, you work with a lot of children, um, and you a lot of people going through changes and growing up. So, you know, what are the, what are the tools that, that you see out there? What's the tech you see or have seen out there that fits the bill? I mean, Dave, let's start with you. What are you seeing in the, in the schools that, that, that is interesting? 
Well, I mean, quite frankly, I talked about the the playing catch up. We talked. Someone mentioned social differences, and obviously, in technology, this this gap right between the haves and the have-nots is very great. And I'm blessed to be at a place, and my my children are that is very, I guess, in terms of schools on the technological forefront. There is still a great deal of uncertainty and lack of clarity. And this is not something I'm saying uh, that my, is my school's fault. This comes all the way through the Ministry of Education. Through I guess the IB has written some more sort of proactive papers and published about approaches to teaching and learning, which is one of their you know buzzwords they'd love to use, and, and how um, artificial intelligence and large language models are can be and should be included right now. But to be perfectly honest, the game of catch up is on a whole different level. And to me, it goes back again to the idea of, for Riley, about actively connecting and disconnecting. This is something, for me personally, in my own life, I think all of us need to consider, not just our kids. This is not an issue for, for each of us in our homes or, or just you know as individuals. Schools are still playing catch-up, in my experience, with just the basic idea of how to enforce rules about mobile phones. There's been a big gap. And whether or not they're using large language models or they're using TikTok, for the longest time, the actual official you know, rules according to the Comunidad de it was illegal, I think, for students to have their phones in the classroom. So that difference between what the official regulation is from the state and what's actually happening in reality is very difficult for schools to navigate. I do know that there are a lot of people who are willing to put in the time to try to make it better, and that's what we're doing every day. No, I'm glad to hear that. And your school is one of the leaders in terms of implementing our technology, technological solutions within the classroom too, right? I mean, the tools that you have there are, are cutting edge normally, right? in terms of the technology inside the classroom, like the whiteboards or whatever? No, certainly. And we've gone there every step. But curiously enough, going back to that idea, um, particularly the youngest students, there's been a real rethinking, a reconsidering of exactly what point we want more constant presence of screens. At what point do we want to step back from that? And it, there's a lot of catch-up to be done. And hopefully this podcast will help push that forward. And uh, our listeners will put, put forward their perspective because we need everyone to come to the table. I agree. Thanks, Dave. So, Joya, what are you seeing in, uh, in healthcare? Any AI tools out there that you see are effective and useful for you and what you think would be or other pediatricians and their actually day-to-day duties or anything like that? Well, yeah, there are, there are many, but... And since there are so many, what I tend to do is to think of a way of, of grouping them. And I, I see like three main compartments of AI. For one side, we have AI, it's called AI for ops, which means for operations or that sort of tasks that happen in a hospital, like taking account of staff, admissions, beds, uh, uh, stuff that you need, like uh, supplies. And usually this type of task that need to track all, all of these uh, things tend to be user-dependent, very manual and repetitive, and lead to fragmented information. And applying AI to, to this specific type of area, I think it helps automatize processes. It helps having standardized registries and consolidated information in one, in one, in one way. Then there is another type of AI that is called the generative AI, such as LLMs. And I think this helps mostly to everything that has to do with documents and also for patient empowerment. And there are many applications that you can Google or you can ask me and and I'm happy to, to provide. But the interesting thing about this is that they generate text, image, video, audio, any way of, of media from specific prompts, and it, it keeps on learning forever. And then there's there must, the, the more 
healthcare-specific type of AI, which is that that can be applied into clinical decisions, such as diagnosis, treatments, uh, research, and um, and I forgot what, uh, and decision support. Uh, and it helps screening images or um, chatbots with uh, with with diagnostic um, questions, but also with processes that have to do with uh, healthcare attention, but not necessarily uh, have to do with clinical uh, consultations. And then there's all uh, all, all this area about about um, how to identify and pursue subjects for clinical trials and how to apply the correct criteria and decisions in real time with the patient right in front of you. Uh, and how, well, I think one of the most interesting ones is the one that has to do with building a digital self, a, a digital uh, twin, and making uh, trials and experiments on that digital twins to see how it would respond and how to personalize healthcare to that specific individual. Well, that's uh, straight out of Star Trek, but uh, <laughs> no, I mean, it's great. I mean, if that, you know, I, I it sounds to me like there's a lot of movement in the right direction in that. And if it can just, I mean, my, my, my worry would be with the, I mean, the clinical trials and all that, I think it's interesting in it, how it disrupts the whole, right now, drug production process and the drug implementation processes. Well, there's plenty of room for good changes there. So thank you, Joya. Um, Ellie, what are you seeing out there in regards to, <laughs> I get to throw the social group activities to you. Um, I know it's a bit a little more general, but. I'm curious as to how you see tech tools changing the way we socialize. And I know you touched on it earlier, so, you know, uh, see what, what, what's out there that, that's the newest and baddest thing to do. Yeah, I'm going to circle back to that momentarily. I just wanted to uh, loop into something that Joey was mentioning that has been quite interesting in the design industry. Obviously, there's a lot of threat coming from generative tools that can develop their own capacities and go beyond what we're sort of capable of thinking of. And I'm using sort of air quotes there because there's curious ways and in a similar parallel or in a parallel, there's a, a similarity rather between what we do and how we do it. Both of those are different ways in which AI is having an impact and is reshaping things. The what we do, so obviously the design industry itself can immensely be reshaped by all of this and can be sort of have new input streams fed into it. We're using sort of generative uh, visualization tools. We're using techniques such as, uh, you know, MidJourney and Discord and ChatGPT and so on to be able to feed into our creativity process itself and to, for example, give visualizations to a client a lot quicker than we were ever doing before. We're still doing the same work, but the, how we've done it is, is sort of changed in that regard. But the product that we're actually selling is therefore almost a fake. And it can be a deep fake. It can be very likened to the original space, for example, if it's an architectural design. Um, and it can be edited, it can be photoshopped, it can be sort of brought into being before it is feasible to bring it into being and to actually create that as a reality. So we've seen that sort of avenue open up and it is scary as heck there's a whole bunch of my colleagues who would be sitting there going yes but there's a big worry around that of what is the reality what are the practicalities can this actually be achieved is it threatening in that sense or is it an opportunity and the other side is the how we go about that so obviously this is a tool that can facilitate but then in our day-to-day -day, in a similar way to Joya, there's been a lot around task management, around data input and analysis and tracking and monitoring and that kind of thing. And even around the day-to-day -day sort of like processing and admin, which frees up more time for the creativity and the exploration um, on the other hand. So there's been leaps and bounds happening there. And I think we're seeing that from a, a really hands-on perspective. We've been running things like uh, a uh, coined term that we used was futurathons to be able to explore using all of these different software and tools and to sort of ideate. We're doing it for competitions. We're doing it within our day-to-day -day work. 
we're not necessarily there yet where that is our daily bread at all. Obviously, there's a heck of a lot to uh, cover off and we still have to do due diligence and, and get to a reasonable level of design around that. But it can help for specific occasions where it's a little bit more agile. Now, going back to the social uh, sphere and the group activities, um, I mean, we mentioned earlier that whether it's for individual engagement or connection or whether it's to be able to facilitate group interaction, there's a lot of different uh, tools there. I want to kind of <laughs> touch upon something that I find quite curious, which is that we invite it into our homes a lot more. And so we have this as now part of the family. And I think uh, I've seen more recently or heard more recently stories, and especially from sort of teacher friends and so on, that kids who once upon a time would have gone into the classroom and made this sort of uh, mistake of saying, hey, mom, rather than, you know, teacher or whatever else, uh, are now saying, hey, Siri, instead of, hey, teacher. Um, and so there's all these devices that we have around us that respond to us, that interact with us, that become part of the installation or part of the sort of thought process. I mean, I use mine while I'm cooking to muse out my sort of wonderings and, and ponderings and to ask it questions and to be doing that. And it sort of saves time in other areas, which I can then dedicate back to my family environment and my, my groupings with my husband over here or anyone else who's there with me. And it almost reduces the family gathering disputes, or the, as we say in Spanish, cuñadismos, that you can sometimes stumble across where somebody's got a point and they're adamant about it, and then there's a debate and an argument, which can be fun, or it can be frustrating. So there's definitely a dynamic shift there whereby we are able to facilitate our own thought processes as well and sort of skip ahead a lot faster even, for better or worse. For better or worse? I guess that's the big question, right? Is it for better or is it for worse? I mean, that's what we're talking about, right? Is uh, is technology making us a better species or is it making us a worse species? Well, I don't know. That's sort of, Adam, you're getting into some kind of weird Hegelian uh, dialectical question about is there a spirit behind uh, our movement? I think that might be a little bit beyond the scope of today's episode, but it's, it, it is an important question. Well, I mean, that, I mean, that's what AI is asking us to, I mean, that's what the whole thing is about. It's actual versus artificial intelligence. Are we sacrificing our actual intelligence in replacing it with artificial tools that provide the intelligence for us? That's the question. Are we, are we releasing our response, or are we, what is the word I'm looking for? Are we stopping to use certain ways of thinking because these machines are doing it for us? And is, it, is that a good thing? I mean, I, 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 I don't have the answer. I'm not saying I have the answer, but is, that's really the question, right? Do we want to just become these... What is, what is the future if you, if you walk down that path all the way to the singularity? Do you really want to have a chip in your brain where you just, you know, and you talk to people through the chip in your brain rather than talking to them with your voice? Are we going to end up the three brains in the little thing in, in Star Trek, the, you know, like that type of thing where you're communicating telepathically and that's it? Is that how we're is that how we're going to move, or are we going to move to the matrix where we're sitting in a tube and the machine is is feeding off of our energy, and we're just living in this in this fake reality, or are we going to continue exactly the same way we are now? I mean, let's face it: you have one cata cataclysmic event that takes down the the net. What are people going to do? I think twiddling our thumbs is going to come back in fashion. I've been, I think. I think that one's going to be really good. I mean, it's been a long time. When's the last time you guys twiddled your thumbs? Like. And it's a worthwhile venture to absorb yourself in that. Like, I see my son. He's seven months. It's not easy for him, but it'll keep him busy for a good while. I don't know. I recommend it. Or, or whittle the piece of wood, you know? Took a pocket knife and whittled a piece of wood into a stick. Whistling a carefree tune. Everybody's always got headphones in these days. I don't hear that many people just wandering along the street and whistling anymore, or you know, cycling on a bike and whistling. And I, I, I feel like it's almost something that becomes an annoyance rather than something which used to be a contribution and a nice, you know, reminiscence of bird song or whatever. But it was a nice way to share something in the community. And now you just look at that person like, oh, you're a bit of a weirdo. It's invading my my privacy or my thought space. And always walking with your head, head in the phone, right? I mean, you, you don't, people don't walk looking up anymore. They don't look to people. They don't look where they're going. They always walk. Hey, I'm not, I'm, not, it, I'm not here to judge. I'm here to question. 
I think that's what Posicon is about. It's about remembering that, you know, hey, this is technology is coming and we're not stopping. It's like we say at Texo, right? Harmonizing it. You can't you can't avoid it, but let's not forget who we are. Right, Joya? You you'd put the chip in your brain, right? <laughs> well, I don't know. I need more information about that chip. Yeah. I wouldn't put the chip in my brain. I don't I don't need a chip in my I don't need a chip in my arm either to pay. I don't need I don't need that. I don't, I don't need any chips in me right now. Anyway, so let, this kind of wraps up the first episode of our conversation of artificial intelligence versus actual intelligence series. And um, we hope the people out there have gotten something out of it and uh, with any luck uh, have even begun to look at AI in a more human way to actually think about not just the worries about their job, but, you know, what worries about themselves and, and where they're going to go and also to embrace it because it brings so many good things along with it as well. Uh, I think in the next episode, we'll look at more at how um, AI might be used to modify behavior for economic gain or other self-interest. I think behavior is a very important thing and, and creating things with AI now, and as you were saying, creating those designs and creating those images is, is super easy to do now, and, and what, are the, what is that gonna take us? We'll have to see where it takes us, so unless, if that sounds good to you guys, that's where we'll probably go, unless you have some other ideas for topics, and I'm always open to them. No? You good. All right. Now, you know, just one last thing before I'll let you all leave. At the end of last season, Ellie and I and Dave and whoever else was on the call, maybe the two interns, uh, Ben and uh, Reed might have been there too, we came up with the idea of ending the podcast with our own personal shout-outs to the, the current uh, time we live in, you know. And we, we were always talking about, okay, should we cheers with beer? Or we, and we should introduce some beer. Maybe when we get beer sponsors, we can cheers with beer. And when wine sponsors, we wine with wine. But I don't know what, what we're all drinking. And, you know, it's really just a rhyming thing. So, but I'll start, you know. I mean, I'll start. I have a beer here, so I'm going to cheers. I'm going to cheers to the fact that we did this podcast and we, we relaunched the PauseCon podcast and that you guys were here and that you guys were great. And I think we're, we're talking about a tremendously important subject. So cheers to that. Cheers. Okay, Dave? I would like to give a big cheers out there to any of the kids who are, I've heard some a bit about it, but I was expecting more and I imagine there'll be more. Any of the kids who are being like the equivalent of a Luddite, they're not breaking machines, but any of the kids who are actively doing on their own way, not because their kids, their parents, sorry, or their schools, or any other adult is telling them to actively disconnect, I'm just waiting for it to, to gain a larger strength of movement of teenagers that where like the new cool is to be a rebel and to turn off and tune in and turn on together. Cheers to all those young people who are doing exactly that. Cheers. Ellie? I'm going to cheers as well this week. I think we're in all in an optimistic mood. This is nice. Start of the year, maybe. Um, and I'm going to cheers towards AI-powered creativity mentioned it a little bit already i love that it facilitates what we can do and ultimately i do believe it's creating jobs um at the moment yeah there's a bit of displacement but i think it's going to be a lot more potential within that and i enjoy that it is used for fun connections and for making the day-to-day -day life a little bit more uh abstract or adventurous as well um i'm looking forward to when we can really get much more out of it tailored suggestions a la what to watch together or what artwork to peruse is already sort of available. But what about if we could have online gallery exhibits curated just for the group that are connecting or a movie that rewrites itself based on uh, reading the emotional reactions of the couple watching it or who knows what we're going to see coming up. But I really like that this is just the beginning of what we can now start to explore and hopefully harness together. Very aligned with you today, Ellie, because I I also want to cheer. Um, I, I I agree with I I don't see these tools as a threat to our jobs. I also think that it will end up creating new positions, and also I see that these are tools that are not going to do our job, but are going to leverage, optimize it, and it will help us add more quality and more value to our work, not, not our job, but to our work. So that is really motivating for me.
Okay, well, thanks, Joy, and I'm, I'm glad to see that we all were cheering this, uh, this afternoon. I'm glad we weren't whining about anything. I think that's great. I think we had a lot of interesting conversations, and, you know, uh, I, think, I think it's important that we remember that, you know, this is, we're, we're all have our own opinions, and, and that's what makes life so interesting and valuable. So well, that's it. You know, I guess that's the end of our podcast for this. Thank you to my co-host, uh, Dave, Ellie, and Joya. I really appreciate you guys um, actually taking the time to be here, and I look forward to having all of you back shortly. I mean, we're going to try to keep that goal of one a month. A big thank you out there to the listeners out there. Please uh, please uh, share and do what you need to in order to do to spread the word. We'd like this to spread around and so people can actually get involved and ask us questions. We'd love to respond to questions. Feel free to contact us. Check out our other podcasts. On the, we, we've done several other podcasts. We've talked a lot about social media in the past and other things that are very interesting. Um, we're on all major platforms as well as on our own webpage, uh, posicon.net. That's www.posicon.net. P-O-S-E-C-O-N.net. And remember, when you're doing Posicon, you're doing good. Thank you.